0: Liberty Lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but your ass on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you're right with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Let's get into the show
1: Welcome everybody to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. I have a very special guest again today. Uh, you may know him as the probably the most successful Libertarian candidate in recent memory, Ricky Dale Harrington Jr. Welcome aboard.
2: Thanks for having me, Clint.
1: Absolutely. Um, well, I, I have a whole list of items I'd like to address with you, but uh, I'd like to start first off with some recent news that I just read. Um, apparently, there's a, a DARPA project for a microchip that will be implanted under our skin to sense COVID in the blood prior to receiving a test. And I can't help but have my conspiracy theory mind go bonkers off of this. I'm curious if you've heard about it and uh, what your thoughts are if you've, if you've read about it already.
2: No, I haven't heard about it. Um, I uh, I wouldn't want to... Uh, I'll participate in that. I know that for sure.
1: <laughs> well, fair enough. Uh, you know, I, I tend not to bring up stuff that is uh, poorly sourced. So the, this, I, I waited on this. I heard about it last week, and then it was reported on in the New York Post today. So it seems to be uh, the real deal, developed by DARPA. And I, I guess we'll we'll circle back to that once we know a little bit more. But um, enough reason to cause serious concern on my end. Uh, I wanted to start with. You you had worked as a, a champ, chaplain, is it pronounced? Yes, sir. Chaplain, and you did that in the, the criminal justice system. Um, that has to be a very formative experience for you in your political life, and I'd like to just have you kind of explain how it brought you to
2: this worldview. Well, you know, last week, uh, Senator Cotton said again that America hasn't, under incarceration problem yes he did his comment is the whole reason why i ran mm-hmm. um because it's just totally detached from what actually is you know we're the supposedly the freest country in america not in america excuse in me the, the world. world yeah leader of the free world but and um this is something that some of the chinese uh people I worked with talked to me about. They said, you know, it seems like it's a lot freer in China than it is in America. It was paradoxical, you know, the reasoning that they had. Sure. They said, there's always all these rules in America. You got to do this, you got to do that. But over here, uh, you can pretty much kind of do anything you want as long as you don't talk bad about the government. (laughs) That's what they said to me. It was interesting.
1: Yeah, well, we have uh, the inverse problem where we may have more freedoms than them in other ways, but uh, you're, yeah, I mean, you can you can speak poorly against the government for now. Uh, it sure feels as if even that uh, you know loophole in our tyrannical system is starting to to close uh, with censorship and whatnot. Uh, well, anyways, let's let's circle back to the the rehabilitation of prisoners and and your work as a chaplain. Um, what, what, did that, what did that teach you about our criminal justice system? I mean, granted, yes, we have far too many people incarcerated. We have the most per capita of any country on the planet, as far as I know. Uh, we have over, I think, 25% of the total uh, you know, prisoner population. It's, it's a catastrophe, and it's heartbreaking as someone who loves this country to, to know all of this and still have people defend it and say that we are the land of the free. Um, what has your work in that, in that arena taught you about, you know, what we should be doing as opposed to what we are doing?
2: Well, we're spending a lot of, you know, they say there's four areas of corrections. And every time I bring a, I go through this list, I always forget one. You know, there's, there's punishment, deterrence, rehabilitation. And here is the last one that I forget. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's another component to corrections and, um, you know, we we definitely fail on the rehabilitation part. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that there are some that went to prison over some, you know, parole violations and they never got involved in drugs. And in prison was the first time for them to be, or to experiment with with drugs. That's yeah. just backwards, you know, right? Prison should be a place where there is no drugs. because You know, that's where you go or doing drugs mm-hmm. but it's available to you in the prisons a lot of it um there's a lot there's a whole economy that's in in, in prisons um the inmates don't really receive the type of mental health treatment that they need in order to reduce recidivism mm-hmm. um, it can be an issue of funding or just an issue of um the personnel are completely overwhelmed And for good reason, you know, inmates are are afforded the ability to have access to the courts. Mm -hmm. That was one of the components I had because I was a chaplain and also what they call a program specialist treatment coordinator, Um, you know, in charge of the treatment of the inmates, not from a medical standpoint, but from a, you know, humane, how can we provide some type of life? For individuals that are incarcerated. Because there's some people that's got a lot of calendars to, to, to uh, take down. And so you keep someone in an area, let's see, that hallway, I could walk from one end of that hallway to the other end in about 10 minutes if I'm just walking slowly.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so can you imagine being in an area like that for 20 years, 30 years, it'd be difficult. So my job is to, is to try to be a pressure valve, to try to help inmates have, uh, to try to form some type of life for themselves. And so there's an area of being, they always have this, this saying, fair, firm, and consistent. And, you know, that, that was definitely formative for me uh, you know, being an employee of this of the government in corrections
3: mm-hmm. you
2: know we we need to be fair with one another and you have to be firm on a lot of things because uh, we need boundaries mm-hmm. and that goes for any type of relationship sure and and we need to be consistent our yes needs to be yes and our no needs to be no mm-hmm. and uh you know i that's straight from the bible right there uh, <laughs> Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do some of that. Uh, but, <laughs> it's okay. Um, you know, that's, that's just how we need to be. I think that can, that can, uh, you know, be applied to our daily lives. Let's be fair with one another. Yeah. Let's have boundaries and let's be consistent. In the things yeah. That we
1: yeah. Well, we, we certainly haven't been that, uh, politically over the past <laughs> couple decades. And, you know, my, my biggest heartbreak with the Black Lives Matter movement was that It didn't seem to have any intention of addressing what I believe are the true underlying issues that are damaging the black community. And as someone who genuinely cares about those issues, I was just heartbroken. I was just heartbroken to see them basically, I don't know if they were misled or or what it what it what it was exactly, but ultimately, like if you're not gonna deal with the war on drugs. A war on poverty, like all of these issues that are actually exacerbating the issue. If you're not going to deal with the lack of mental health treatment for people that are imprisoned, like all of these things that actually need to occur to to better the situation, um, I, I just don't see any hope of us breaking this cycle. And and it seems as if everything that they were calling for. Was essentially just economic Marxism, you know. It wasn't. It wasn't really dedicated to alleviating these. What I see is the 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 real generating issues for these causes. Um, did you have a similar outlook, or did you view it differently?
2: Well, I I, I view it differently. Um, you know, I know there's an organization that goes by Black Lives Matter,
3: right? And I don't know
2: much about that organization. I, you know, I'm. I'm more focused on community, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, local communities. And that's where a lot of these issues happen. And if local communities, um, you know, start working together on dealing with these issues, and we all know the history of America, um, you have to understand the condition that Black Americans uh, grow up in, have to deal with all the time. Um, you know, we seek first seek to understand. And mm-hmm. whenever we understand one another, that, then we can start working on problems. And this country has a terrible history of, of the treatment of African-Americans who used to be considered commodity,
3: yeah, you
2: know, ch- chattel slavery, property. Um, Alexander uh, Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederate States of America, and also died as governor of Georgia in 1883. Um, he stated himself that, uh, you know, their cause um, was a just cause, of the preservation of, of white supremacy, and that the the Negro is in his rightful place uh, in subjugation to the white race. I am paraphrasing that quote there, but you can go find this quote. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have to get to a point to where, you um, we are no longer kind of getting caught up on kind of semantics and and nitpicking on certain issues to where we we reach across the aisle and we we see and recognize the humanity of our uh, you know fellow countrymen and women mm-hmm. regardless of their race and we we try to help one another you know it's not an issue of, of forcing someone to help you but we, we have to understand um, that there are some things that you do and I do, um, regardless of race, and that's been taught to us. And we don't understand that, hey, this is not something that we should be doing. It's just, you know, tradition.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I don't blame every white person for the mistakes. of. I've, I've talked about this uh, before. I didn't talk about it on the campaign trail. I talked about on a couple of the podcasts. I was 18, and a couple of older white men threatened me with lynching at a bowling alley, threatened to drag me behind a truck, string me up in a tree, and shoot me with AK 47. Um, and, you know, that was kind of like what happened uh, to Mr. Bird and Jasper mm-hmm. at, in East Texas, um, you know, that ritualistic style of murder. And so, um, you know, there's always room for improvement, but if there's going to be any change, it's going to have to come at the local level. It's going to have to come separate from the corporate media, because only thing that matters to them is is the dollar bill. Sure. Is it people's lives don't matter uh, because you know with all that was going on, and I ran against a guy. Um, you know, there's still some people that uh, say he was he was speculating whenever he said slavery being necessary evil, which. Even if he was speculating, he shouldn't have said it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was running against a black man, the first black candidate for Senate in Arkansas history. And the corporate media didn't jump on that. That was like prime, deli prime uh, uh, headline news for them. But because I was a libertarian, on oh, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna platform him. Yeah. Even though he's black. Yeah. Even though we have all this racial injustice going on. So, you know, for me, I guess it's not about black voices. It's only about the black voices uh, that we can keep.
1: That's, that's exactly my opinion of it. And I think that's why, you know, outlets like mine and others have, have grown in popularity is because we will platform people with dissident viewpoints. And, you know, even, I don't even think that your viewpoints are dissident per se, but you are, you are not towing the line of whatever their grievance politics are specifically. And that's, not to mention you you were challenging the existing power structure. So naturally, they're going to defend the power structure, regardless of their rhetoric uh, as being the opposition to um, you know, white supremacy in this country or whatever. I don't know of any organization that does a better job of propagating it than the U.S. media.
2: they firm and consistent. No <laughs> consistency there on their, on their end. No, never. Definitely um, not fair.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, so... As for for policy fixes, though, you know, my I, I wasn't I wasn't bringing up my distaste for Black Lives Matter, the organization, to to denigrate some of the the things that they were pushing for. It's just simply that I didn't think that they made the focal point of even the grassroots organization. I didn't feel that they were making the focal point enough on ending the war on drugs and things like that. Would, yeah. would that would that have been something you would have pushed for?
2: Absolutely, um, we need to talk about the things that are actually affecting um, all communities. Mm-hmm. I was just talking to um, my campaign manager, and um, she, she she's uh, she happens to be white, you know, and uh, she was was telling me a story about her uh, life, and she kind of grew up. Um, uh, struggling, you know, there's a lot of uh, low-income Caucasians that have, uh, you know, similar uh, struggles that um, you know African Americans as as a whole have. Certainly, and you know, we we need to find avenues to, to understand one another, so we can deal with with the real problems. And and it comes down to this power uh, structure that's in this country, um, to where. You know, we they're they're keeping people down, and we we just have to find a way to to knock them off their 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 big high horse.
1: No kidding. Yeah, I would like to see us lift everybody up, and and it doesn't seem as if there's any real resolve to make that happen. It seems as if the majority of messaging these days is about growing divisiveness. It's not about uniting. Even when they talk about uniting, it's in contrast to demonizing people based off of their color and and now the the in vogue thing to do is to demonize people based off of their whiteness and and i find that equally repulsive to demonizing people and thinking that they should be chattel slavery i mean if you're going to judge people based off of of skin color i i simply don't agree with you you know period and and it's that used to be a really progressive outlook and and today you can be accused of racism for feeling that way, which is remarkable to me. Um, I, I don't even know if I have a point with saying all that other than it just disturbs me. The trend line disturbs me that it feels as if we were getting very close to having a unified distaste and, um, you know, Suppression of slave, uh, not slavery, but of racism in this country. It was like we were all kind of on the same page, at least it felt like to me. And then we just got sidetracked with all of this, and now we're at each other's throats again. Um, do you do you view it similarly, or or did you feel that we were never close to, you know, uh, subduing the the evils of racism in America?
2: I think we've made progress. Um, you know, as I stated, um, my life as a black man has not been as severe as my parents and my parents wasn't as severe as my grandparents. So on and so forth. Right. Black people in this country. Um,
1: That's not to say that it wasn't without its trials and tribulations.
2: Yes. Um, but this is the thing that I'd like to talk about. Um, whenever I start talking about those, those issues, I'm not putting, and I'm talking with them with, uh, my compatriots that happen to be uh, Caucasian.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It, it's not about placing blame, you know, just like when those, those three guys came at me and uh, threatened me with lynching. I don't make every white person pay for their mistake. Sure. Um, that's not just mm-hmm. um, the, the the punishment should have been on those three men making terroristic threats. Undoubtedly. Um but the thing is, is that if you are in a situation where people are talking about their experience, and you feel uncomfortable, or by talking about that experience and talking about, well, hey, you would you uh, you really laughed at the joke there. Mm. You know, if somebody made an off-color joke. You know those those type of things. We have to get past those things, and people have to ask questions within themselves in their own heart. You know, why do I feel this way? Mm -hmm. Whenever someone, I had a I had a friend use the term reverse racism, and for me, I think that's an absolutely wonderful opportunity to put all the cards on the table and try to get you to understand what it's like to live in my world
3: mm-hmm.
2: whenever if a white person feels um, you know the this is this is what you you could describe the emotions um, let's just go to that 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 uh, that instance there when I was threatened with ritualistic murder it uh, it definitely you feel the shame um, you feel less of a human being and I'm emphasizing ritualistic murder here because that's exactly what it is. Yes. Um, you know, and I, I try to speculate on what the emotions that uh, my brothers and sisters that happen to be Caucasian in this country feel whenever we talk about issues of race. And the more you talk about how you feel about it, the closer we can, we can come together. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, just be, being open and honest about it. And so I think this this is exactly what we need to do is um, whenever one side starts talking more about it and you begin to have, you know, an emotional reaction to it, ask yourself, why do I feel this way? And then whenever you have formulated in your own mind, a a way to explain how you feel to someone else in a clear, calm manner. And, uh, you know, the Bible says something like this, you know, um, a kind word will flip someone just like that, you know, flip an angry person whenever you don't respond in the way that they are expecting you to respond. Right. And so whenever we start moving together like that, we're going we're gonna to see things really change.
1: I, I agree. And I, and I think that's absolutely what we need a lot more of is to, to speak openly and honestly, but also with, uh, you know, love and kindness in our heart when we talk to people, especially of different races in this environment where we're being told that we we're at each other's throats or that we're, we're at odds with each other. I I think my point in bringing this up is simply to say that I I'll just give you my perspective. My perspective was that we were not at odds with each other. You know, like I, I don't view people of different shades as being anything different from me. You know, I just view people as people and, and it was heartbreaking and, and stories like yours are heartbreaking to me just so you know how it feels for us. You know, it, it's, it's tragic that that still happens in this country. You know, it's it's mind blowing to someone like me that that could still be something that someone has to deal with in this country in this day and age. It's like, it's crazy. Um, but I I guess I guess from my perspective, I'm just trying to find practical ways to take steps forward as opposed to as opposed to ruminating on the past too much. Even though the past is very important and we have to learn the lessons from it. Obviously, if we don't learn the lessons, then we're just going to continue on this path. Um, I'm just interested in, in, like, I don't know, recognizing each other's humanity and realizing that we want the best for each other, or at least attempting to want the best for each other and formulating a system of governance that allows for that. And, you know, I, I think that, that one thing that, that has rubbed me the wrong way when it comes to the, the pushback against police violence and police brutality in this country is that I, I personally view the police issue and the, particularly the police violence issue or police murder in many situations as a, I mean, it certainly has racial undertones to it, but it is an issue that affects all of us. and I, And it drives me crazy when people try to make it exclusively about racism, when in truth, it's largely about power dynamics and the fact that they don't pay a price when they... Remove our rights when they take our lives unnecessarily And and it happens to people Of all colors every year And And I just feel like it would be a much more Unifying galvanizing concept To inform people That we are all at danger This is not simply a racial issue and And I feel like it would give us A far greater likelihood Of prevailing in this fight To actually get people to come together And say no more We're not going yeah. to allow this anymore
2: You know you know, racism is, is a power dynamic, okay, but certainly. Um, it's, the, it's the easiest to recognize power dynamic. Mm. Um, and so, you know, for those that want to keep their power, you, you, you fashion it in such a way to where by, you know, platforming it, of course, you're going to trigger a reaction in certain people that that are racist. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. like um, you know, with the kneeling during the national anthem, I really just I just don't think that should have been that big of a deal.
3: <laughs> I agree. You
2: know, uh, for people to to turn it into something that it wasn't, it's like this. This is just what I thought about it. Okay, the the I'm telling you why I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I have the ultimate authority on, on, um, you know, whatever you call it, uh, the author's privilege. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: You know, the words that I speak, I give them meaning. Nobody else. Because I'm the one trying to communicate what's up here through language. Mm -hmm. And so... Or through symbolism, in this case. Or through symbolism, yes. Uh, uh, Through some form of communication. And so... The gentleman said, "I'm kneeling in response to police brutality." Um, and then it was about disrespecting the troops. It was that we come back and turn it into something else. And this is what they're good at when it comes to uh, politics: we turn it, we change the narrative, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and that wasn't even about it. It w- wasn't even about that. Right. It was about protesting against police brutality. And you can't expect someone to have a genuine conversation if you come at me with a aboutism, or you completely change the discussion instead of, you know, addressing what I've said first, mm-hmm. then we'll move on. Right. Then we'll move on to whether or not it was disrespectful to the troops or not, if you felt that way. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, I don't think many people are interested in having real genuine discussions that are going to bring about real pragmatic solutions. Yeah. Well,
1: if, if anything taught me, <laughs> if anything, 2020 taught me, it's that very few people are ready to hear uh, their ideological opponents perspective. It's like, where I, I'm just stunned at the amount of divisiveness that, that the lockdowns and um, the police violence and all, all these things have brought about. And, and I just don't know. I don't know how we get past it, honestly. Like I, I'm getting more and more convinced that the fissures within this, this nation, within this population, are so deep and profound, even though I don't think they really are. You know, if we were actually talking, I don't think they really are. But I'm saying in terms of perspective, you know, it it feel, it just feels that way. When you when you see these sides at each other's throats, when you see Antifa and MAGA rallies. You know, coming together and fist fighting in the streets, and you have this happen for months on end. It's like, I, where where do you see this going? I mean, do you think that we are we are headed towards the precipice of another civil war? Do you think that we're headed towards um, some sort of coalescing where we can we can find each other's humanity again before things fall apart?
2: What's your perspective? I'm just gonna be honest with you right here, please. Unless unless we unless we find a way to pump the brakes to take a chill pill yep. and calm down it is the future is not looking bright yeah that's just the truth of it um, I felt this way um, whenever uh, Michael Brown uh, was um, you know that broken over the socket I mean that was one of the, the first memes I guess I posted whenever they took a picture of his face in the hospital and he definitely didn't have a scratch on his face. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just felt that at the time, you know, I just had that that gut feeling that it's going to get worse. But we'll tell you this. I am still optimistic that we can do it. If we don't do it, we will head down that road right but it's it's going to take for the people that that hate politics that don't want to get involved in politics it's time for you to get involved in it you can't sit on the sidelines anymore yeah. because i'm telling you once those trucks stop running and then you have that two week period where people are not able to uh, get supplies that they usually can get and then you have that couple of weeks whenever uh, people are just going out doing whatever just for uh, uh, kicks and giggles. Mm-hmm. And then you get to that point where um, um, just talk to any veteran that's been uh, on a peacekeeping mission in an area that's been in the Civil War. It ain't It ain't call of duty. <laughs> no, it's There not. ain't no respawn.
1: <laughs>
2: that's very true.
1: And... Yeah, yeah, honestly, I I listened to your uh, your debate against the ghost of Senator Cotton since he wasn't present. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you you ended it with saying that that you knew or you know that Americans are res- Americans are resilient, and uh, I'm glad to hear that you still you still maintain that optimism. I mean, even the even in the face of the stark reality of the situation on the ground, I, I like that you're balanced. That you you're still seeing. What is likely coming if we don't shift course? But you maintain that optimism, and I think that that's a really important thing for us to do because it's so easy to get black pilled, which is a term I don't even know if you're familiar, but basically just pessimistic to the you know like like there's nothing we can do, um, and and I struggle with it daily. You know, some days I wake up and I'm still optimistic, and I'm I'm you know quote unquote white pilled, um, but it's like it's like man, this is just. It's just so. It's just so dire. It really, it really feels like we are. We're so close to completely imploding and falling apart. And I haven't even brought up the the economic system, which I, I believe is really on the precipice of of collapse. And if you have a a a society in discord, and then you have economic collapse that's paired with it. Forget about it. Like that, that's why, and it gave me chills when you said it's time for the people on the sidelines that didn't want to be involved in politics to get involved. I've been saying that for months. That is exactly what we need. We need the people that didn't want to be involved to get involved because regardless of how you feel about the political system, this stuff is coming to your doorstep. Like it's coming to your doorstep. So there's no there's no capacity to just sit back and let other people fix it. It's really on us, in my view.
2: You're absolutely right. I mean, uh, we, we have to be engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I went from coming back from China as a missionary uh, in transient homelessness uh, to four years later running for the Senate. I mean, we we have a, a very interesting country. We uh, do indeed. <laughs> I, I talked to some of, uh, you know, the people that I know, and friends that I I have that are, you know, from other countries and they're like, usually, you know, people from prominent, wealthy, uh, you know, families get in politics. And then it's kind of that, you know, the grease, grease my palm and we get things, you know, rolling. Right. But It still exists here, you know, with some of the political corruption that we have, you know, the pay for play system that we have, but, you know, to, to go from, something like that to, to running for the Senate. And more importantly, you know, if, if the Libertarian Party didn't make ballot access, the people of Arkansas would have either had to abstain from voting or vote for Tom Cotton, which, yeah. uh, you know, according to the law, you have to mark one Well, Let's see. There were 26,000 people that, that did undervote on that. But most people uh you know they they're going to mark something and mm-hmm. then uh, and then if somebody is unopposed it'll it'll tell you to click a button for uh, you know the rest of the the candidates that are uh, running unopposed
3: mm-hmm.
2: there were fifty one seats in Arkansas and for the you know the legislature that were un- unopposed incredible what in the world <laughs> 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 How are you gonna let somebody just walk into a job like that and the only thing they have to do is pay their state party uh to go marching right in. Right. Uh, to, well, I, to represent the people.
1: Well, I, I appreciate that you that you took your shot. I think that it was tremendously successful, even if you didn't win the, the seat. Um I think that you know having having someone with your voice and your demeanor representing the Libertarian Party was was really great Um, just from my perspective and not, not for the diversity aspects. I can care less about that. Just, I really thought that your, your calm, very like deliberate delivery was something I had, I had rarely seen. And I have to wonder if that's not from your religious upbringing, is that kind of a pastoral uh, background that that gave you your, your talking style?
2: Well, it's uh, probably that coupled with personality and and adversity mm. um, you know i've i've been in situations that have been extremely violent i've been in situations you know and especially in that prison uh, one i remember i still remember the first riot i was ever in it wasn't really that bad when I mean, they can get real bad of course obviously but they were just fighting like crazy in front of chow hall and um they make you stand mainline. You have to stand mainline for thirty minutes, at least once a week. So I was standing mainline, and that fight broke out, and the deputy warden was standing right beside me. And I used to I used to be a, do some bouncing, <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, also when I worked at the psychiatric hospital, it was my job to deal with uh, violent encounters. So my first reaction was, okay, I need to jump in the fight but I looked at the deputy warden. He just had his hands in his pocket and he was just looking at him, uh, looking at the correctional officers try to gain control of the situation. And in those prisons, uh, there's no guns on, on the hip, uh, only the Lieutenant and captains have tasers. Uh, everybody just has the chemical burst and you don't You better be, uh, aiming right. Cause you can just pepper spray everybody. Right. Um, so it's usually a lot of fist fighting to gain control. <laughs> um, you know that's that's for correctional officers there. But whenever I saw him just keeping uh, you know cool and relaxed, and I was just thinking, okay, maybe I'll just sit here and uh, watch them do the job too. So uh, you know, later that day, I asked the superintendent, "What's the proper protocol?" And uh, he said, uh, "Chap, just sit back, and let us handle it. But if you see us getting whooped, you need to jump in." <laughs>
1: The chaplain getting in fist fights into prison—that's what a life, man.
2: <laughs> you know, um, the, we we we're supposed to have a an air of trust with inmates um, as chaplains. Um, so it is kind of like a buffer between security, the administration, uh, and and what we try to accomplish is mm-hmm. uh, to, to help men have breakthroughs. And it would have been a breach of trust if, if I got involved in the fight because mm. um, the, the unspoken code is you're not supposed to put your hands on the jabber.
1: Sure. That's a good rule.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> For me, of course.
1: <laughs> well, um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with David Gwernoski, but I had him on my show a couple of weeks ago, and he's got a really beautiful... Um, he's a... AM host that's nationwide. He's got this really beautiful message of of Christianity paired with libertarianism and the non-aggression principle and things like that. And I've I've recently been mulling over this topic with many of my guests, and I'm curious to your perspective given your religious background. Uh, my thesis is that, particularly given what we're up against, I'm not sure that we can prevail without. Not necessarily a faith in God, but a belief in something higher. And mm. and I think that there's a, a reasonable argument to be had that the reason we have failed in propagating this message is because we have taken it out of the, the realm of spirituality and made it purely a a manifestation of materialism and you know our our corporeal being. And I, I'm interested if you think would we would we would it behoove us to pair a a sense of spirituality and a higher calling with the message of libertarianism. Uh, Do you think that that played a role in in your success in getting so many votes? And, and do you think that that is necessary moving forward?
2: Well, for me, I'm I'm coming at it from a pastoral perspective first before I address, uh, you know, the political ideological aspects of it. Certainly. And uh, from a spiritual perspective, um, just for any society to be a healthy society, uh, people have to behave in a certain way, mm-hmm. and that's in, in meaning that I'm not saying that a person has to hold the tenets of a particular faith for a society to be a healthy society. There's a there's a baseline thing that any type of religion, you know, basically agrees upon. You know, treat people well. Just treat people well. But for, from a pastoral sense, some uh, my favorite books in the Bible deal with God's people working in government. And particularly in Daniel, the issue was idolatry, political, uh, political idolatry. Um, the, Nebuchadnezzar, he had a dream about a statue. Daniel interpreted that dream. And afterwards he built a 90 foot tall golden statue after Daniel had told him, Hey, this statue that you dreamed of that head of gold, that's you. So he took that and got puffed up in the head and made people commit idolatry. And then the people of God refused to commit that political ideology, uh, political idolatry
3: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, sentenced them to death. So for me, I'm i I want to stay far from marrying um, any type of religious ideology with political power and movement because um, you know it's just just take a look at what we have going on with the uh, uh, you know republicanism and and evangelicalism uh, as well they've kind of been married together uh, the GOP in Arkansas on their Twitter page they say that. Uh, For their party, the Bible is their found, you know, their principles, the basic principles of republicanism for them. Um, And that's extremely dangerous. I mean, that is talked against heavily in the Bible, right? Of of, of this marrying of of the two. As doesn't, you know, and some people could ask the question well, what does that say about you? You're a pastor and you're involved in politics. Well, I'm, I'd be involved in this regardless mm-hmm. and in both, but I'm here as a member of the clergy saying we don't need to have them together. Sure. Uh, and it's, 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 it's separating my political uh, activity from my religious activity and not putting my political activity over my religious activity because my religious activity is, is the preeminence in my life. Right.
3: Yeah. And
1: I, I don't want it to sound as if I was arguing that we should um, not have oh. a separation of church and state because that, that certainly I, it was more it was more a, uh, a discussion as to what benefits our messaging most. You know, like I, I, I think that that the reason that we continue to lose these fights, the reason that we lost the fight against lockdowns is that we were making, I, in my view, kind of raw, factual, hard science arguments against lockdowns, whereas we were competing with emotional arguments that were based off of fear, largely. Yeah. And yeah. and I I believe that our message is most successful when it's delivered with a sense of hope and optimism and kind of the Ron Paul mentality of like the happy warrior. And and it's just I'm just I'm just trying to like see what the balance is, you know. It can't it can't be totally hard science dollars and cents type stuff. We have to convey the beauty and the love and the spirit of this um philosophy as well. Is what I'm saying.
2: Absolutely. Um and I I get what you're saying. Um you know there there people don't focus on libertarianism is both philosophical and political. Mhm. Um, because there's an aspect to it that prompts you to behave a certain way, especially with the non-aggression principle. That's, I mean, do unto others as you have others do on you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right there from the Bible right there. You know, treat people well. Don't take their stuff. You know, if you take a look at the Ten Commandments, it's, it's basically summed up, You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I don't want nobody taking my stuff. I don't want nobody, uh, you know, messing around with my wife or (laughs) whatever. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. Uh, So don't do that yourself. Don't mess with other people's stuff or mess with uh, or destroy anything or um, let your heart be poisoned where you think it's okay to take another person's life to get whatever they have that you want. Mm-hmm. And you don't have. Right. If if that makes any sense. Um, but um, you know, there's a lot of interesting things in the future. And I I've been thinking about this and I want to talk to you about this. Sure. Uh, you know, the I'm thinking about the post antibiotic age. Mm. Um, I'm not a physician. <laughs> I'm I was just a lowly. Uh, nurse assistants, (laughs) just a lowly nurse assistant and whatever work that I did in the hospital. Still higher credentials than I have. So shoot. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Uh,
2: And there, there are a lot of, uh, you know, things that have happened in our past when it comes to contagions. And there are going to be a lot of things that happen in the future with contagions. Yes. And I think we have to find that balance and I, I might not even be sure what the balance is, mm-hmm. just being honest. Sure. Uh, but we have to find that balance But because we can transmit diseases to one another. And, and an airborne virus is probably one of the, the most hard to contain for human beings, and especially one that can be transferred between human and animal, which um, is what these, uh, these coronaviruses, and uh, these SARS-based viruses are, you know, they have the ability to, to transfer between human and animal. Yeah. And Whenever that happens, you know, we're in, we're in deep trouble. But for, for me, some things that I'm looking toward the future on, you know, as a public health aspect is this post-antibiotic age, which is, is uh, you know, a lot of uh, people that are prominent and know a whole lot more than I do about it are, are looking at it and thinking about that as well. And whenever that happens, it's going to set us back. Big time. Back. Yeah. Whenever you have, um, you know, MRSA and other things like that. So,
1: I mean, I, we're already kind of there. I, there. There are more and more strains of, you know, antibiotic resistant uh, viruses and things of that nature. So, yeah, I agree with you. I, as to the balance that we find, i'm I'm personally going to side and lean towards liberty, regardless of of the existential risk that these new strains prevent. I think that preemptive action makes sense on a voluntary basis, where perhaps we stop prescribing and using antibiotics so pervasively. I mean, we use it constantly. and And I think that that is largely why, they are now obviously as you're using them more and more. You have these viruses that evolve and and they they find their ways to to circumvent whatever treatment you're trying to provide. So I, I I'm concerned that that the the medical system as it's structured currently is leading us towards this future. You know and and unless we kind of basically with all of these arguments over the past year, it's like we're not dealing with the root issue. Like almost everything is dealing with the the. The. uh God, what's It's the political. I mean, it was political. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's yeah. certainly political. Yeah. But I, but I'm saying we're we're dealing with the 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 effects of the ailment, not the cause. You know, like like when we talk about the the kids in cages at the border, we don't we don't talk about the war on drugs or any of the, any of the things that are actually largely driving this. We don't talk about the fact that the these governments in in South America have been. Um, Destabilized (laughs) Yeah they've been destabilized by us And then also uh, oppressing their people And that's obviously driving immigration And you have a president that talks about how he's going to treat them Better than Trump so obviously you have this huge surge of people It's like but I'm not even blaming it on Biden Like I'm not if I talk about it People will think that I'm blaming it on Biden Or that I'm blaming it on Trump It's like no neither Like I'm blaming it on the structure of everything You know we got to get to the root of these issues I don't know
2: Yeah I mean The the influx of uh immigrants at the border is a result of the, our failed foreign policy. And it's been, it's been down the tube. I mean, it's just been atrocious
1: yep. for decades.
2: You know, we, we've been running guns. <laughs> okay. All right. So, you, <laughs> okay. I'm about to, I'm about to throw a haymaker right here. Okay? <laughs> Love it. So we've been running fully automatic guns to people in South America to fight communists. But Hey, I can't have a a fully automatic AK 47 to go hog hunting. I mean, you don't need any gun like that. If you're going hunting, apparently you've never been hog hunting in Texas. 30 or 40 hogs out there. And I got a 30 round clip and I won't meet in the freezer. (laughs)
1: Well, and they want to take it away from law-abiding people well they provide it to gangsters in Latin America. I mean that that's literally what they did and we know about it. Um, I,
2: There's operation, no
1: consistency in that. No, yeah, and that's operation I think fast and furious. Uh, that was under the Obama administration not that it matters. I mean we do this stuff under every presidency. It's just, yeah. it's just doing crazy it for
2: decades
3: doing yeah. It for decades yeah this is I Absolutely. mean it's basically
1: as long as the CIA has been around we've been doing stuff like this <clears> and, <throat> and we constantly pay a price for it but we don't ever address the root issue which is that we're constantly destabilizing other nations and then when we have you know fallout from it or blowback is more you know more often the term um, we don't address we don't we don't ever consider the root causes and and the media who whose job it is is to uh, I mean Whose job it is—I'll give it air quotes—is uh, to educate the populace so that we we can then vote for better politicians that uh, ameliorate these issues. We get neither, so it's like this whole the whole system is set up, in my view, to fail. And and I'm well, I guess this is a good good way to get you out of here because we're about at time. Uh, what what is your your next step? What what are you looking to do? Is there a political route? Or are you going back to you know private practice and and saving souls as opposed to saving the nation?
2: Well, it seems that i will I will be running for Governor of Arkansas. love it I thought about it long and hard. I thought about what i what I wanted to do. I talked to my wife about it because uh, uh, you know this is going to affect our family. I thought about you know why uh should I I run for office uh, whenever, you know, obviously I, I have two disabled children
3: mm-hmm.
2: and, um, you know, they, they have needs and um, I can, you know, just kind of fade away and and spend my time with them and making sure that they are ready to face this world and, and try to be successful. But it, it, it seems that I, I, I still have work to do. And there's been plenty of people that, have had um, to deal with adversity. It also had to 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 try to accomplish certain goals.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, you know, three percent is the goal for the party in Arkansas to get ballot access. It's not going to be a two-way race like last time. I'm of course uh, I want I own to run to win because just to put it put it plainly. I think that uh, my ideas for moving forward are the best ideas out there compared to uh, any of the other candidates, because with uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, it's more of the same. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of other Democratic candidates, uh, be more of the same, but I'm, I'm trying to do something different. I'm trying to uh, let the people rule, which is the motto of uh, Arkansas, uh, you know, their state motto. So that's what I'm about. I love and, it. After I accomplish that, then I guess I can go find me someplace to go fishing.
1: <laughs> I love it. Well, those 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 uh, few years fishing will be well earned and and I really hope I, I genuinely believe that it's it's do or die time. Like we need anybody who's got the spirit that you have, who has the the capacity that you have to to message in the way that you do. Um, it's, it's just vitally important for people like you to get involved and to stay involved. And, and I, I really genuinely from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate your willingness to sacrifice what you are. Um, I know that ultimately it'll benefit you and your family if you prevail. So, uh, God willing, that'll be the case. We, we need more people like you involved. So thank you so much for taking the time with me today.
2: No problem. I appreciate you, brother.
1: Absolutely. Everybody go follow Ricky. Um, I will add your, uh, your Twitter handle in the description, but uh, go ahead and tell anybody any other information that you might want to have them follow you on. If you have any other platforms, I'm a Twitter only guy. So
2: Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Rick D Harrington is the handle on Facebook. It's RDH for Liberty. And my website is Ricky Excellent.
1: well, if you run, which it sounds like you will, please uh, contribute to his his campaign. We need guys like this out there. And, uh, anyways, thank you again.
0: Big shout out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street. Appreciate y'all. World premiere. Субтитры Peter Quinonez, invite me on Which podcaster sends custom songs Part of the problem, now nah, I stand with the people Dave showed the way, but I am unequal Lions and liberty now hear me roar Beat running out, but I got a bit more Robbie the fire, always running his mouth But I made him a sandwich, now I'm man of the house The malice for Nick, but you're welcome to quit I went over BLM with the fire I spit Friends against government just call us fags Copped the Cairo, put mummies in the bag Allowable opinions get thrown on the ground Silky smooth time was the only sound Getting so Get into the show